Thanks to Cry Malt. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and voice of beer 2025, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. Voice of beer 2025. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah. G'day, listeners. Well, uh, good to be back. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll explain that. You've uh, recently been up uh, back to Brisbane um, to uh, play the uh, Odd Couple with me, uh, cue the Odd Couple music. And uh, yes, because you were the speaker of note for the uh, Queensland Homebrewers Conference. Yeah, up to dinner speaker. It was um, it was an honour to be asked to um, yeah present for the uh, after dinner at the the Queensland Homebrewing Conference, the dinner. Uh, so there were a lot of and look. It's an easy gig when you think about it because these guys have been uh, listening to very interesting people all day whilst drinking beer. So after three courses and four sensationally uh, different um, and very well made. Uh, homebrewed beers, I reckon they probably would have laughed at anything. <laughs> oh no, you! Uh, I, I heard the speech. I wasn't there, but I, I did hear the speech when you were rehearsing. They were, they were genuinely funny. So, uh, and, and it, it certainly had some great reviews. Um, more of which uh, later. Uh, oh, okay. Right but uh, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's been very well received. So uh, well done. Um, but uh, part of which, and explaining the voice of uh, beer twenty twenty five, you looked forward to. Uh, what the beer industry is going to be like in 2025. Yeah, did a little bit of a, a humorous, uh, yeah, look into the future, crystal ball kind of thing as to, uh, you know, what, what the beer landscape might look like in, in 20 years' time. And uh, any, any highlights that you can uh, mention? Well, no, it was very visual, Matt. It was, uh, so it probably doesn't work so well on Radio Brews News. <laughs> I, I'm okay. not, genuinely not that funny. I, I, I needed props, and I needed uh, I needed um, you know PowerPoint presentation. Big no, <laughs> clown nose and That's uh, wig. It. That's it. Okay. Okay. Well, it was it was certainly very well received, and uh, yeah. And uh, mate, what else else has been happening for you this week? Um, keeping keeping busy, but out of trouble. So not too much happening. Popping back up to, uh, up your way again um, next week to do uh, help out. With a corporate gig uh, up at Sanctuary Cove. For a lightning tour, though? Yes, yeah, fly in, fly out. Don't get a chance to do much uh, to do much else, unfortunately, but um, but looking forward to it. I, 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 just, I will throw in at this point, because I, I know we have, I have mentioned it before, um, but, but this time around, unlike when we are up at the Echo, we got to, to get out and, and, and get to a few venues, and Brisbane was pumping. Like I know it was, you know, Armageddon, Armageddon was on at uh, at Archive. I was there the night before, had a couple of really nice beers. Um, the Alliance Hotel, I've got to give them a shout out because for a, I guess, a food venue that's not necessarily a, you know, a craft beer place, the beer offering uh, was terrific. Man, it, it, it's one, like I've done a bit of work for them um, and, you know, I, I can't, I, when they first set up, I did some work um Building their beer list, but I can't claim any credit for what's there now because I haven't um, uh, been there. But and, and I do a number of events there because it is such a good food venue and it's, it's it's such a good hotel. So you know that bit of Alan Jones bell ringing. You know I'm not on their payroll at all, um, but the fact that I do the events there is is the endorsement I'm going to give because it's um, it, it, it's one of the hotels that sort of shows me that craft beer has a very bright future and it's probably not the bright future that a lot of people look at when they look at you know beers made out of stag semen or barrel aged or you know brett infused or or whatever it's a venue that doesn't really do um plasma screens they don't have a jukebox you know 
they just it's it's a place where you go have a great feed. Um, they have you know Forex Gold. They've got Kosciuszko on tap. But uh, I'm trying to think of what they had. They had um, Fortitude um, Golden Ale when you were there. Oh, yeah, and yeah, we super dry. Yeah, and then the rest were um, the other five of the eight taps were um, yeah, like you say, uh, there was Fortitude Gold Ale. There was uh, there was an IPA in there. There was a stout. Uh, it was a good a, a good uh, a good honest like a good range. And we, we had dinner there. I, I had dinner there twice. Um, last week um, for reasons I won't go into, but one of them was with you. And, uh, you know, we had uh, pork belly. Oh, no, not pork belly. Um, suckling, suckling pig. Suckling pig. And, uh, you know, they had uh, La Serene Saison, which was a wonderful match, an amazing match for it. Um, I, I think the second time I went, I had the... Uh, uh, I had you a had meat the 12-hour lamb shoulder. I had the 12-hour lamb shoulder and uh, Holgate uh, ESB, which was just, yeah. uh, again, the superb match. Um and, you I know, had the slow cooked so, brisket with the um, with mountain goat hightail, which was a, a cracking good match. Another nice match. So you don't need seventy two taps. You know there is a bit of no. an arms race about having the most taps or having the highest turnover. This is just a place that does it where you can always go there and find something to match your meal, which is what I my personal mission is. You know when venues, it's not that they've got a selection of seventeen sour beers. It's when you can go there and find something that you want to drink that matches with your meal, and the staff can tell you a little bit about it. Yeah, excellent. Mm. Speaking of which, um, did you see there was an uh, an article in Beer and Brewer magazine? Um, CBA Executive Officer Chris McNamara discusses with Beer and Brewer magazine whether craft beer is expensive. Too expensive, um, yes. Yes, which is an interesting topic for discussion because it's something, you know, like you, you look at some craft beers, you know, not naming, singling anybody out, but some craft beers you can pick up at, you know, and when I say craft beers, I mean small independent craft uh, breweries. Um, you can pick them up at, you know, $75 a carton, um, you know, $18 to $20 a six-pack. There are others that are, you know, $28 a six-pack, Um and you, you know, as somebody who knows the cost that goes into beer, um, the you know, for particularly small breweries, um, you don't want to sort of say, "Gee, is it worth it?" But even I'm looking at some of the beers that are saying, you know, this is a, for example, a golden ale or a, you know, like a just a, a you know, not a not a barrel aged hop, anything, just a like a, a, an everyday beer. Ten overs, not to forty, just nice line and length. Yep. Sessions beautifully made, yep. um, but you know, twenty six, twenty eight dollars a carton, and you're thinking, geez, you a know, a oh, no, sorry, a, a six pack, you know, and or you know, twenty dollars a four pack. Um, some of them are starting to get yep. under that twenty dollar mark by putting in four packs, and you, and you think, well, on one hand, gee, that that is a lot of money, and a punter's going to pay for it once the hype and everything moves on, and then some of the brands who are commanding that premium, um, you know, have great names, but you know. A substantial portion of their volume um, is coming you know, un, under contract. And uh, anyway, the, the, the CBIA's um, column talks about why is beer so expensive and um, you know, it talks about the time allowed by craft brewers for fermentation maturation, the scale at which things are done. More hands-on means more hands-on. Retailer margins are generally higher. Craft brewers generally brew on demand without relying on product stockpiling. And the logistics of moving beer around economies of scale or lack thereof have a considerable impact. And then there was a little bit more um, you know, going on. It finishes, it, you know, so is it worth it? It depends on what you want. Mass-produced beer can be offered at a mass-produced price. Craft beer comes at a craft beer cost. 
the main thing surely is to ensure you get what you're paying for. Which that last sentence, yeah. sorry, Bob, you, yeah, it, you go. It comes back to that that old. Uh, it, it, you've got to distance yourself from, or, or appreciate that there's a difference between uh, cost and value. Absolutely, absolutely. But the thing that this article highlights for me, uh, well, actually, there's there's two fairly distinct points. One, uh, and they, they both intersect, is that, you know. It is the struggle that craft beer, um, you know, small independent breweries are going to have, um, you know, justifying that value or trying to give you um, a sense of value and not just price um, going forward. And it's the same issue that the uh, CBIA has sort of from the way that it's structured is, you know, when you're talking about craft beer, we can argue ad infinitum, as you know, as the craft beer community does, about what craft beer is. So the average punter, fat yak is craft beer, you know, 150 lashes is craft beer, um, and incidentally, the CBAA tells them that they're craft beer as well because both of the those brewers are members of the Craft Beer Industry Association. Um, but then you've also got small brewers like Red Hill and, you know, uh, White Lies in Brisbane and Fortitude and, um, you know, the, the, the very small, you know, Ashley Huntington down in uh, Tasmania. Two metre tall, yep. You've got all of these guys um, who, on one hand, you, you, you're being told they're um, craft beer and yet, in a perception sense, you know, some you know, fat yak, which is made at Yadala, um, which is... I believe the biggest brewery in the country, um, and then you've got you know beers that are being made in you know 500 litre batches, you know as opposed to you know 100 hectolitre batches, um, you know, come you know meeting each other in the marketplace. And how do small brewers, the genuinely small independent brewers, differentiate themselves from the uh, um, mega breweries? Um, and then, you know, as I said, you, you, you've got brands that are, you know, independent still, um, and they've, they've got humble roots, but are now being made at some of the breweries that are, you know, have 150, you know, hectolitre brew lengths as well. Um, how, 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 if the market sees craft beer as one thing, how do these small breweries that have genuinely high production costs um, differentiate themselves from? larger breweries that are maintaining a much higher margin cost. Well, I like to think that outlets like uh, this very one that you're listening to now, folks, um, is a good way of, I guess, uh, helping you to make informed decisions. Hmm. But it's also, you know, just uh, the, the second string is the um, difficulty that the Craft Beer Industry Association, on one hand, there were certain decisions that were made around membership um, to make sure that, you know, it was a viable organisation, which... First of all, there's no point having an organisation that doesn't succeed, and you know, so including some of the big guys in the tent was a big part of that because they pay commensurate with their size. But at the same time, you know, when you've got an organisation such as the CBIA that represents the interests of the big brewers, uh, you know, well, big craft brewers and the smallest craft brewers, and then you've got the hybrid, you know, all of the hybrid models um, inside, it makes it very, very hard to. You know, you know, reflect ac accurately the, the interests or the you know the the value that each um, brings to it a, a little bit, particularly in an article like that, because uh, you know, um, when, when a beer that is uh, you know nominally craft, because 
it's produced by brewer, brewer that's a member of the craft beer industry association. But you can't think of a more you know, mass-produced beer, given it comes from the same brewery that makes the most mass-produced lagers. But you know they've got to advocate and try and defend questions of price when they're representing all interests. Or am I overthinking it yet again, Prof? The horse is dead. Oh, I mean, it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> okay. Mate, you, 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 I, 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 I'm going to call you on this one. Go this on. is one time when you are sitting on the fence. Uh, uh, no, uh, well, I disagree. I will tell me. I, I, think, I, I think I think to you know United we stand and all that sort of thing. I think that um, having the big brewers in inverted commas um, inside the CBIA as or part of the, of the of the CBIA is saying that at the end of the day let's let's stop talking about whether you know trying to define craft uh, by what it isn't and let's just start um, I guess okay, giving, no, no, giving no, ourselves no. a bigger voice. I, I think you've missed my point a little bit. No, I, no, no, I, wasn't I, I totally, I totally get the whole thing about you know, you know, but sometimes it, it, you know we're well, handcrafted hand. and all that kind of you know kumbaya kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, I think good beer is 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 where you find it. No, it, it is. But when you've got, um, you know, I mean, God, when was the last time I bought Fat Yak? I don't know. When Fat Yak's what probably about sixty-five, seventy dollars a carton. Fifty-four. When was the last time you bought it? Is it? Oh, mate, it's, it's been a long time. Is it really fifty-four? A lot of things in Brisbane are a lot more expensive, mate. Uh, mate, I might, <laughs> I'm just going to Google that just to see uh, yeah, go for it. what that is. But uh, is it 54? I would suggest that the regular price is around about the 59, maybe Uncle 62. Dan's. Uncle Dan's got it for 64.99. There you go. Well, maybe it's oh, gone up recently. Oh, no. Uh, 48, 48.90, Uncle Dan's has got it for. 20.49 for a six-pack. The defence rest. Okay. So 48.90. So where do I see it at 64? I think it's about 24 for the um, the 10-can box usually yeah oh okay anyway. okay so it's 64 dollars a beer but so okay i'm betting that they don't sell too much um fat yak yeah, no but but even so like that, that's that's the um you know that's that's the independent margin that independents have got to do to uh, make their businesses um exactly uh what but you know and again, though, we could also talk about, you know, how Joe Hockey takes, well, sorry, how, how um, the Treasury Department or the ATO takes, what, $23 or so of, of that 64 before we've even bought a bottle cap. Yeah, well, but I mean, that's a different issue because Fat Yak pays out the same as, you know, the, the, the smallest brewery. Yeah, I'm just saying so it, this, it, it, we, we do pay a lot in tax. We, we, do, we, high, we, we pay more. Um, in this country for beer than anyone else in the world except I think for Switzerland Switzerland might pay more are you sure about that I'm positive about that well, I might have to get the fact checkers out on that one because I'm, I'm sure some of the Scandinavian countries pay a little bit do, more do you think I just make up these things and just shout them out and then people go oh wow that was interesting and, and don't think to you know check up on me oh mate, I'm very impressed if uh, if you had that uh, stat at your fingertips must have, been, must have been true because I said it with a straight face Okay. Anyway, um, mate, <laughs> we're going to have to talk on, about this. This is going a long time. We've we, got a lot we to do. get through. Um, well, we, we've got a, Very a great guest, a, you know, a, a repeat performer, um, good friend now, of the program. We can we can officially call him. Well, yeah, and he's yeah, fantastic guy, uh, Martin Cornell, who's the uh, you know sole voice of the Zetherfile um, blog, um, which is it would be possibly fair to say that it's probably the most influential in terms of people getting their facts straight. Um, actually, that was not a bad uh, segue. Um, people getting their facts straight about beer and particularly things like the history of IPA. Um, Martin uh, has been 
rigorously researching the history of IPA. And we spoke to him, as, it, as you'll hear, um, surprisingly, uh, four years ago. Um, and when I listened back to that, it, a couple of things struck me, how much I love the podcast, but also how uh, constant some of the themes that crop up on uh, Radio Brews News are. So fortunately, we get lots of uh, new voices to introduce. But Martin has a new book out, so we might have a chat and see what he uh, tells us about the new book. You know, there are still plenty of terrific tales to be told about the, the history of beer, um, what's, what's happened in, in beer over the past uh, thousands and thousands of years. Um, and, and more recently, there are some terrific tales. And, and uh, you know, uh, can I use this as an opportunity to plug my new book? Uh, as... You wouldn't describe any of these tales as being strange tales of ale by any chance, would you? Yes, I would, funnily enough. And that just happens <laughs> to be the title of my new book. Um, because it's about some of the, the weirder things that have happened in, in the world of beer, like, for example, uh, one of my f- all-time favourites is how they used uh, Spitfire fuel tanks uh, to take beer to the uh, British Army in uh, northern France after D-Day. Which is a fantastic story. Which is recounted in the um, in the book and how they flew it over. And uh, obviously, when I read that story, I've got no idea what the unassisted range of a Spitfire is. So I'm not quite sure how how how, uh, how much they were cutting down their their range by doing it. But obviously, they uh, apart from just regular being shot at, as happens to fighter pilots, they they weren't they were taking a very calculated risk in doing that. Yeah, I think well. The, the calculated risk was that you wouldn't be jumped by uh, Messerschmitts or trigger trigger happy Americans who didn't spot that you were actually on their side, uh, because if you did that, then you'd have to release the drop tanks uh, and you'd lose all the beer in, into the English Channel, which was uh, the major problem that they had. I, I, to be honest, I don't know what the uh, the unassisted range of a Spitfire is, but it's certainly far enough to get you uh, over from Sussex to Normandy with a load of beer on board. And presumably back again. Uh, no, they just landed, and I, uh, they had they had set up temporary airfields um, that, were, that were then used as the bases bases to uh, pound the Germans um, in France. They, they one of the very first things they did, I think, within about two or three days of of the uh, invasion, they were putting down temporary airfields uh, across that small part of Normandy that they've managed to capture, uh, and from there. Um, again, within a very short period of time, uh, RAF squadrons were uh, transferred, um, and you know, there was fuel there. There was everything that it could need, all their mechanics and everything else to to provide them with with proper bases. So they would they would very often when they were ferrying replacement aircraft over, it would be those replacement aircraft that were coming in that they would load up with the beer. And they would then uh, land and be welcomed by the, uh, the the troops on the ground. Now, one of the, uh, the the other stories that you and in fact, it's the story that opens the book, um, and uh, it's probably the one that saddens me the most um, was that you debunked what was the highly ornate story of the Great London Beer Flood, which was, of course, the um, giant porter tank at the Mukes, or actually the smallest, but the, the giant porter tank at the Mukes Brewery um, erupting. And my favourite recounting of that was told by Pete Brown in one of his um, early books um, that 
it was one of those snort beer out your nose sorts of uh, tales. Um, I think that although uh, the story had been embellished and encrusted with uh, all sorts of things that weren't actually true, you know, like the, the alleged riot in the hospital uh, because people could, could see all these victims being brought in and thought there was free beer being given away somewhere, uh, is not true at all. There is no um, evidence for that ever ever having happened. Uh, but at the same time, it's still, it's still an amazing story and it's still... Um, you know, tells you so much about London life at that time, you know, that, that uh, they're in the middle of the town, uh, in in the heart of uh, an extremely crowded city, was this enormous brewery, and all around it uh, were slums full of uh, people living, you know, literally uh, a family to a room. And, and down in cellars, and the had the um, flood happened an hour or two later, all of, all of the uh, you know, rooms would have been occupied and the, the, the carnage would have been much, much worse. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, was, it, was, it happened, I think, at about uh, just before 5.30 in the evening. All the men uh, were still out at work, and so the only victims were women and children. Now, the, the, the other um, thing about the story, quite apart from the, the, the flood itself, it uh, recounts the history of Porter that has been much quoted and much misquoted. Um, but it, it really was the world's first industrial beer. And it was really only possible in London, wasn't it? Because London was one of the few uh, cities in the world that had the population to support brewery on, you know, brewing on that scale. Yeah, I think that uh, there's no doubt at all that um, the, the fact that there was a big market for beer meant that uh, the, the porter brewers were able to invest the money that they needed to perfect that particular drink. Uh, the whole thing about about the earliest porter was that it did need a long time to age. Uh, it probably, well, this is my theory, but I'm saying probably, it probably needed quite a lot of uh, Brettanomyces action uh, to ferment some of the uh, higher sugars that you get in um, in diastasic brown malt, uh, and so to to get a beer that would taste good, you you needed to store it for at least a year, probably two years, you know, which is what was going on in those giant vats in places like the Mukes Brewery, and you had to have capital behind you to be able to. Uh, make beer that you weren't going to get any money back on for a couple of years. So, so first of all, you needed big brewers, and to get big brewers, you needed a big market. So, yes, without a doubt, uh, it couldn't really have happened anywhere else except a big city like London. Now, I, I read uh, recently on Ron Pattinson's blog uh, that he was looking at the, you know, the difference between stout and porter and essentially found that there was very little difference between them. One was a subset of the other, essentially. Yeah. Um, and talked about the history of Porter itself, that, you know, whilst there were these legends of, um, you know, three threads, um, that it, uh, a very potted version, which is where you get yourselves into trouble. Um, but uh, landlords aged beer themselves um, and would blend it to a customer's specification with uh, new beer um, and... The, the, the breweries eventually saw that if they aged it themselves, they uh, you know, got all of that value add themselves. Is, is, is that a reasonable rough summary of the, the origins of Porter? 
very often it wasn't actually the the uh, landlords that were that were aging the beer because they didn't have that much room. It was um, third party uh, entrepreneurs who would who would buy uh, the mild beer, mild in the sense that it, uh, meaning that it was fresh, newly brewed. They would then store it to allow it to mature and gain those uh, flavours through maturation that the the public liked at that time. And then those third-party vendors would uh, sell it on to the landlords, who would then be able to to mix the uh, mature beer with new mild beer uh, to to customers' preference. Uh, so customers would be able to to order their porter uh, more mild or less mild, and the uh, landlord would adjust the, the quantity that he poured from any particular cask uh, in accordance to whatever the, the customer actually wanted. Um, but at that time, this was at a time when they were still maturing uh, the porter in butts, which is 108-gallon, uh, two hogshead-sized casks, uh, and they had to put these... They would hire sellers out across the city uh, to store these butts in so that so that the beer could carry on maturing for you know the required period of time and it was uh the the invention um probably at a brewery called the red lion brewery at uh, alongside saint catherine's dock just on the edge of the city of london it was the invention of uh, storing beer in in giant vats uh that then enabled um the big brewers to take this uh maturing of the beer back in house as it were uh, but apart from anything else, it's very dangerous, or could be very dangerous, to to mature beer in cellars because what's happening? Of course, the beer is still maturing, it's still uh, fermenting, it's giving off carbon dioxide. Not that they knew that at the time. And if you weren't careful, you could go down to the cellar; uh, it'd be full of carbon dioxide, and you you'd collapse and die. And there's at least one recorded instance of of this happening to a to a brewery employee who was checking up on uh, fermenting uh, his his masters fermenting beer in a cellar that have been hired out for this uh, going down and collapsing and a, a sedan chairman went down after him to try and rescue him and both of them both of them died of suffocation and, and that wouldn't happen in the, the the large porter breweries with the you know as they're fermenting and aging you wouldn't get the overspill of carbon dioxide no, uh, no they put uh, they put lids on them but even so um, it is it is said that uh, they made sure that nobody went into an emptied porter vat. Once a vat had been emptied, uh, nobody was allowed to go in there for a period of time, something like 36 hours, uh, because they knew it was dangerous. Again, they didn't necessarily know why it was dangerous, but it was because it would still be filled with carbon dioxide. Now, just diverting from the uh, book a little bit um, and to your um, excellent uh, website, um, Zethophile, just taking a step back, you've done a lot of research into the Three Threads mystery, which is uh, you know, what people talk about in the birth of Porter, and it turns out that this whole concept of the, the Three Threads and the blending of the three different beers was, as is often driving history, it, it was a tax dodge. Yeah, well, the Three Threads story uh, um, gets attached to the story of Porter uh, early in the 19th century where somebody... Uh, wrote a narrative, and this was at least 
80 years after um, a drink called Three Threads had disappeared. And somebody wrote a narrative saying that Three Threads was this blended drink made of uh, three different types of beer and that Porter was supposed to have been brewed to replace it. But if you look back um, at the very few references that there are to Three Threads, it becomes clear that it wasn't a beer made of uh, three different drinks at all. It was a blended beer. But what it was, uh, was a blend of weak, small beer and very, very strong beer. And the reason why they did that was because there were only two levels of tax. There was a tax on weak beer and there was a tax on strong beer. But the tax on strong beer was the same, same no matter what the strength was. What you could do was that you could get really strong beer. You could, on which the high tax had been paid, you could blend it with weak beer, and you would then have two lots of normal strong beer, as it were, on which you hadn't paid all the tax you should have paid. So uh, it was a way of basically fiddling the tax man by making a drink that you could you could sell for the price of... Um, two lots of strong beer, whereas you'd only actually pay the tax on one lot of strong beer and one lot of weak beer. Uh, Martin, I was just going to ask, you, you just spoke about the, the blending um, of, the, of the beers to the customer's preference. Was this yeah. done uh, like as a, as a Salomon uh, and then it was drawn through one tap, or are we talking about using two or three different taps to, I guess, to produce a, a beer on the spot? Well, there are, uh, this isn't actually that, that clear, but there are certainly um, patents and references and pictures of uh, taps that the uh, barman could adjust so that he would get the, the flow out of one spout uh, from two different casks. Uh, so if we were using uh, hand pumps, it could be set up so that you could... Uh, you know, blend it so like a split line you could draw from two the way it came out out of the cast in your, in your cellar um, in Ireland in fact they, they carried on using this uh, this method of um, older flat beer uh, being served up with fresh uh, highly conditioned beer um, right through until really the, the invention of uh, nitro keg Guinness keg Guinness in the late 50s and early 1960s. And there, I believe, they did actually serve it from two separate casks that you would get uh, a third of old beer, and then that will be, which will be more or less completely flat, no condition at all, and then this will be topped up with two, two-thirds of uh, highly sparkling fresh beer from a, from a separate cask. The, the main reason I ask is that uh, Matt and I recently... Uh, Presented uh, a good beer to the people of Brisbane at the uh, at the Royal Brisbane Show at a, at a stand, and uh, I had an occasion where uh, one punter asked for a, a, a tap beer for himself and a bottled beer for his his friend, who he was going to take it back to, and of course the the bottled beer was three thirty mils and the, the the tap beer was four twenty five. So he said, "Oh, do you just want to top that up with something, just so he doesn't think I'm ripping him off." And I thought to myself, well, no, you just can't do that. You know, you would never do that. Little did I know, I was actually drawing on perhaps a great tradition from, um, you know, English uh, porter brewers and uh, and publicans. Indeed. Well, uh, as you as you may know, um, in Britain, 
uh, from certainly certainly in the 1950s and 1960s and, and earlier than that, it was it was traditional to uh, have a a pint of beer and there would be a half pint of draft beer and a bottle of beer poured on top of it. Uh, but that was because the, the draft beer was very often flat and not very good, so you disguised that by <laughs> sticking slightly more expensive bottle beer in with it as well. And man. It, it, it is fast, the thing that fascinates me most about history in, in, in reading your blog. I sort of look at the um, you know, decades long development of beer styles, and I, I, I guess if you, you know, looked at any one, you know, a couple of slices of any one, you know, six month or 12 month or even five year period, um, you could say that beer is this, but of course it's a constant evolution. Yeah. And I, I look at what modern, you know, Beer geeks uh, say this is an IPA and this is a porter and th this is a stat as if there was ever a time that these things were, were, were fixed. As somebody who spends his days um, you know, studying the history but also being a very passionate sort of modern beer lover, you know, what, what lessons should you know, beer enthusiasts these days draw from you know, your experience of researching some of these, uh, th these long histories? Well, there's no doubt, as you say, style is not fixed and and has never been fixed you know styles evolve all the time uh an ipa today is a beer that you know, an american ipa is a beer style ipa is a beer that needs to be drunk very quickly to make sure you capture those lovely fresh uh hoppy aromas an ipa when it was designed was was a beer that was meant to last at least 12 months uh, all the hoppiness would have would have long evaporated from it. It would probably have had quite a bit of uh, Brettanomyces sourness in it as well. Um, so the idea that you can you can say this is an IPA and nobody you know it's been written in stone and nobody should alter from it uh, is complete nonsense. You know the, the style and the name now means something very different. Nothing wrong with it. I don't think there's anything wrong with calling it an IPA because because it, it describes uh, to the drinker something which he or she is going to be familiar with and going to understand. And the fact that it's nothing like uh, what somebody in the 19th century would have understood by an IPA, I don't think particularly matters. So I'm I'm completely relaxed about things being called uh, black IPA or anything like that. If as long as the drinker understands what they're getting and you're using uh, words that give the drinker um, the indication of what they're going to be getting in their glass, I'm perfectly fine with that. And yet so much of the story relies, you know, so much of the, the marketing of the modern beer relies on this uh, sort of a fabled story um, about the history of IPA as if you know, you, you, you're in touch with um, something that happened two years ago by drinking a modern IPA. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, marketing is marketing. What can one say about it? You're always going to get um, people. People like stories, which is fine because I, I tell people stories and I'm very happy that they... In, in, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, people like to buy things on the strength of, of a story very often. And uh, I don't mind that as long as the story is true and based in fact. Which brings us nicely to the story of the history of the Ploughman's Lunch. Was no. it actually an invention of the uh, Cheese Marketing Board in the 1960s? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, there is no doubt at all that beer, bread and cheese have been uh, partners for centuries. You know, probably 
going back to at least the Middle Ages or before, people have eaten as their noonday meal or their afternoon break meal uh, bread and cheese and drunk beer with it. Uh, in Britain, in the 1950s, we had lost that kind of association. Pubs no longer particularly served food uh, and in any case, during the Second World War, there had been uh, rationing and so on. You couldn't get hold of cheese. You very frequently couldn't get hold of beer. Um, the Cheese Marketing Board in about 1955 decided that it would like to promote eating cheese in pubs with beer again and stumbled across what uh, a writer um, called Adrian Bell was calling the Plough Boys Lunch, uh, which was served in one of his local pubs, and it was just a lump of bread, some pickles, uh, some cheese, uh, maybe some tomato, and a pint of beer. And they, they thought, what a great idea. If we can promote uh, this idea around Britain's pubs, we can boost the sales of cheese. Uh, but they didn't like the name Plough Boys Lunch. They obviously didn't think this was macho enough so they changed it to plow man's lunch and you can find from uh the late 1950s onwards uh, you start seeing advertised uh have a plowman's lunch and a lovely picture of bread and cheese and beer so the idea of the name plowman's lunch uh, is an invention but it's describing something that has been uh, eaten and drunk by people for centuries which I guess is one of the those vexing things about marketing is sometimes giving the name the, the right name to something does you know, does sell. Yeah, uh, people always need a, a hook to grab hold of. Uh, they, people uh, need to know why they ought to be buying something. And uh, if you can fake it up a bit by pretending that this is the sort of thing that sturdy, muscular ploughmen were sitting down under the shade of an oak tree somewhere uh, were eating and and you are selling selling more cheese does it matter i don't think so necessarily did, did you worry though um you know, again as somebody who sort of loves the history of beer um i i, I read uh, your comments on the um on, on camera's great british beer festival um and you described um, too much of the beer is too samey. Um, mind you, that's a reflection of the state of this British small brewing scene. Um, and, and while they're interesting and challenging beers, it's a pain in the butt trying to track them down. Here in Australia, and it may be the same in, in England, we're seeing this arms race or this constant need to do what's new and what's interesting. Um, and, and I always worry that that leads to a pressure to move, you know, the, the, the things that are classics that are great um, lose interest in, you know, if, if a generation moves on away from them, we can see them disappear completely, um, which is often, um, you know, a, a, a great loss. How do you personally reconcile some of these pressures for what's new and interesting versus and you know marketing and moving forward with you know keeping the best of the the, the classics? You're quite right. There is a um, a tension uh, between the two sides of beer. Beer fundamentally, and I, I 
hope that everybody can agree on this. Fundamentally, uh, beer is about sitting down and having a great time with your mates. And it's about lubricating uh, the crack. Uh, it's about uh, getting everybody together in a nice, relaxed atmosphere and enjoying the company, the chat, the repartee and everything else. At the same time, beer can also be uh, a fantastic um, taste experience. Uh, it can take you to as many places as good wine or good whiskey or any other uh, great product uh, can take you. And you you can't necessarily do that in a, in a pub unless you're sitting there, you know, you're Billy No Mates and you're sitting there on your own in, enjoying your pint of whatever. Um, so, and there, there is and always has been, I think, um, or you know, since, since appreciation of beer actually became something that, that one was not ashamed of admitting to be doing, um, you know, the rise of writers like Michael Jackson and so on, uh, there, there has been a, a tension between these, these two ideas about beer, that one in the, that it's the relaxing drink we enjoy down the pub, and two, that it's the beer that we can sniff and slurp and, and talk about the hot varieties and the barley varieties and all the rest of it. Um, and the problem with the Great British Beer Festival, I think, is that, as far as I'm concerned, you, you can't uh, get the enjoying being down the mates element and the uh, trying out new beers element at, at the same time and in the same place. I think the Great British Beer Festival, a lot of people obviously enjoy it. I personally, I've been going to it since the 1970s, and I find it uh, too big. I find it too difficult to find beers that are going to interest me um, that I haven't seen before and that I'm that are worth tracking down. Uh, and I I find uh, smaller events where I can chat to the brewer, uh, find rare beers, and so on. Um, now. Much more interesting. Now, it may just be me. I don't know. But I, I certainly agree that uh, we may be in danger of losing those those great session beers, uh, those beers that are um, the ones that you do want to be sitting down the pub enjoying, enjoying while you're chatting to your mates. And the beer is where the beer is an accompaniment to the to the entire evening and not the, the sole reason for being there. Uh, but I think that there's enough people still interested in that sort of beer that, that uh, and there's enough people still brewing those sorts of beers that um, although the geeky end, the extreme end, tends to get all the publicity, uh, the, the normal having a great time with your mate's end, I think, is going to survive. What's your view then of camera? Are they, have they saved um, real ale or have they calcified it? You know, and and stopped it from evolving. I think there is a danger that uh, that camera is now you know, in the way of the development of beer in Britain, uh, and it, and at least in part because I'm bored with arguments about what is craft ale, is craft ale just overpriced uh, keg beer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think there's an extremely uh, dull debate and. The only debate ought to be, is what is in the glass any good? 
and uh, the, the idea that you should reject it because uh, you once rejected Watney's Red Barrel or uh, Incoop Double Diamond and, and this is served in exactly the same way and therefore it must be no better than Watney's Red Barrel or Incoop Double Diamond, to me is nonsense. Taste it. If you don't like it, fine, don't drink it. But But don't stand in the way of the very many num large numbers of people that do want to drink it. And the problem with camera is, although it talks about having uh, 180,000 members, the, the activists, the number of activists is very small, and most of those activists are ageing. You know, the, it, it's astonishing to think that when camera started, all its first six or seven chairmen were under the age of 35. Now, it's actually quite difficult to find a member of Canberra, let alone you know, somebody in the senior position who is under the age of 35. Canberra is in danger of dying out simply because it's currently doesn't seem to be able to enthuse uh, people who are enthusi enthusiastic about beer. There are loads and loads of people still enthusiastic about beer, but they're not enthusiastic about Canberra. What's your view then of, you know, you talked about the sessionable, sessionable beers. Um, I, I, I note that you are an enthusiastic uh, trier of a lot of the modern craft beers and there, there seems to be like a hops arms race uh, that's almost like when people first discover chilli in their curries, you know, to see who can tolerate the hottest curry. Um, did you think that a lot of these extreme or, you know, highly hopped or sort of over the, 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 the top beers have a future? No, I think there's room for them, and there and there will be people that appreciate them, uh, and and they have a place in, if I can use a rather pretentious term, one's drinking repertoire, uh, and uh, you know I enjoy them. I enjoy them on occasions where I only want one beer, and if I've got a you know an imperial stout or a, a American triple IPA or something, uh, that's fine. If I want more than one beer, then I, I don't want one of those beers. You know, um, fatigue, palate fatigue sets in very rapidly with those beers. But I think I think one of the things is, I mean, and it's something that's surprisingly not talked about very often. Um, there's an entirely different style of drinking in Britain and in and in the United States, which with those are the countries that, with respect to Australia, tend to drive these things. And in the states, they don't necessarily go out for great long sessions with their mates. They do do much more of their drinking at home than certainly the British do. Uh, and they tend to do, you know, more... Uh, they tend to go for, therefore, they tend to go for uh, more um, one-off hits rather than the uh, sort of beers that you can drink for extended periods, which is what um, Britons tend to, to go for. Now, one, back to the book for a second, one of the, the uh, chapters I read very uh, avidly because I'm, I'm drafting in, in, in my head and sort of going back and forth about an article looking at glassware and uh, whereas tax has quite often, you know, there's been a whole lot of drivers of glassware. Um, I, I have this theory that it's currently social media that's driving glassware development. And uh, so you've got the Spiegel Our range of glasses that seem to be solely devoted to, uh, you know, whilst they have pretensions of being uh, about the uh, sensory qualities of the glass, it seems to be more about how distinctive they are on social media. But you, you, you talk about the, uh, the the story behind the um, Dimple Beer Mug, which is the classic uh, beer mug. Yeah. 
yes, I've, I've, I've been to uh, sessions run by the Spiegel Hour people and uh, uh, they have presented the different uh, same beer in different glasses and, and yes, when you're standing there, you're thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's, yes, there's certainly a difference. I, I'm never convinced that uh, that's not an artifact of being there and being talked to by the person, you know, I'm, and, and, and whether or not you still get that when you're away from, from this guy telling you, these beers are going to taste different in these different glasses. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe. A, a literally blind tasting where you can't see what glass you're drinking out of and, and you're then able to uh, properly evaluate whether or not one beer does taste different. I, I can't conceive of how you've, you, you, you've done that. And I've done a number, like I've done them both in the presence of the Spiegelau person and I've conducted my own tastings uh, that, that I do myself. And uh, there does seem to be a fairly distinct difference between some beers and some styles. Um Primarily, in my view, you know, for a whole range of reasons, but you know, it, it does seem to taste very, very different. Whether one glass is the perfect one for an IPA and a very similar but slightly different uh, glass is perfect for a stout, and another similar but slightly different is you know beer is perfect for a wit beer. I, I don't know. Um, I guess it depends on what elements it, it, it you know, exaggerates, but. This whole idea that um, I, I find it fascinating that in a world where people are photographing, you know, the bejesus out of their their beers, um, that it just happens that the most photogenic or the most distinctive glasses are the ones that are the perfect highlight, you know, over some of the more traditional. I've noticed that Spiegel has, um, you know, stopped their or stopped promoting their tulip glass, which was a beautiful glass I love drinking in. Um, but it just didn't seem to be quite as distinctive as some of the uh, inverted commas perfect glasses that they're using these days. But do, do, do you think any of uh, any of what we're seeing as the modern drivers for glassware development have a historic parallel in you know the rise of the dimple glass that you, that you account in the book? Well, I think uh, what's what's always driven um, glassware in in the British pub is uh, the demands of the person serving the beer to have something convenient, uh, stackable, uh, cheap, uh, that won't get stolen, uh, and hard-wearing. Um, so that was that was part of the reason for the rise of, of the dimple. It doesn't stack very well because of the handle, uh, but it's very hard-wearing. It's a good, chunky pint. And actually, um, I, I like the dimple because I think beer looks, amber beers look very good in it. Um I hate the, the no-knit glass, the one with the with the bump on the, in, the, in the side, because I think it's just unbelievably ugly. Uh, but it's very popular because it stacks well, uh, it washes well, it's long-lasting, and it's cheap. So as far as uh, pubs are concerned, it's a it's a great beer glass. You know? And I was I was in Italy earlier this year in a in a trendy restaurant, uh, and they were selling up. Uh, serving up um, an Italian craft lager in a no-nick pint glass, and I thought this just <laughs> this was this was because the no-nick pint glass, uh, like the dimple, has become an image of the British pub, and therefore, to many people around the world, you know, is a is a good glass to be seen drinking out of because that's what they do in British pubs. There, I would disagree. Um, so, I think. 
we're never going to see people like Spiegelau in in um, everyday use because they're too expensive and they break too easily. I, I actually was given a set of their glasses, uh, and I think I've got one left now because they just break. Martin, is there any truth to the fact, to the rumor that uh, the nonic glass is so designed so that the actual lips of the glasses don't touch against each other in the glass washer, therefore there's less likelihood of getting those little chips that then force you to yeah. have to throw the beer away, uh, the glass away? Yeah. yeah, it's called the no-nick because there are no nicks out of the, or well, supposedly you will not get the nicks out of the edge of the glass yeah. by, them, by them rubbing together. Uh, that was why, why it was designed. There we go. Hey, listen, while I've got you there, can I also just uh, quote to you from my second favourite series of, of books, which are the QI books? And this uh-huh. one's from 1339 QI Facts to Make Your Jaw Drop. On page 122, I uh, draw my learned colleague's attention to the following. The Ploughman's Lunch was invented in 1956 by the English Country Cheese Council. That, there's no, you know, that's very definite. That's a that's a very bold statement. Uh, and they have like 300 um, researchers who, you know, look you, at it. You've been sitting here sort of uh, flicking through for this specially. I've got three uh, more. Just, I've got three more to come. But I'm going to start off with that one. Uh, now, I'm just reaching up to get my own. I'll see you and raise you, he says. It's history books at 20 paces. Absolutely. I am, I am surrounded by them. Now, hang on just two seconds. But while you're looking that up, is it true? Did Pliny the Elder really have as a, a cure for hangovers to tie a um, a set of fox's genitals to your forehead? <laughs> I have or is that never... just one of those things that you just can't refute it because who's going to who who can find information to the otherwise? Yeah, yeah, I have I have never come across that one. Uh, now here we are. Yes, I have it. I have it. I have it. Yes, the first mention uh, of what eventually became known as the Ploughman's Lunch uh, was in 1956. And uh, as I say, it was called the Plough Boys' Lunch. Um, and then it was 1957 that, that uh, you actually see a reference to a Ploughman's Lunch. And it was the, the Cheese Bureau rather than the... What did, what, what did they call it? The English uh, they called the, the English Country Cheese Council. No, it was and the, they say, the, and it's in capitals and everything, as if that's an actual thing. No, it was called the Cheese Bureau, and I've, I've actually, <coughs> if I could be bothered, I could pull you out the 1957 reference to it, and uh, to confirm that it's called the Cheese Bureau. Oh, I, 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 I believe you. I am typing out as we speak, dear Mr. Fry. I shall yeah, no longer uh, be watching <laughs> your television said, program. Yeah. The Oxford English Dictionary. I said. I said they had been looking for uh, earliest mentions of the the expression "blowman's lunch," and I wrote to the English uh, to the Oxford Dic- English Dictionary to say I have one from 1956. Uh, how about that then? And I'm I'm proud to say I have a letter from them saying yes, thank you very much. That is the earliest reference uh, that we've come across. So, uh, on the other hand, although the expression only dates from the mid nineteen fifties. Eating beer, eating bread and cheese with beer, has been going on since we had beer and bread and cheese. Oh, I think that's a been a thing. Rose by any other name, exactly. Indeed. Hey, while we're, <laughs> while we're on the subject of Pliny the Elder, what did he really say about hops? 
Uh, well, we're not even certain that, that he was talking about hops um, because he talks about this, this plant, uh, which he calls, if I remember correctly, Lupus selectarius, which means uh, the wolf among the willows. Yes. And it's later, much, much later, uh, the Italian word for hop was lupulus. Lupulus. Uh, but whether the Italian word for hop comes from the Latin word lupus selectarius is debatable and there are plenty of people who have argued that it's actually um, a, mis a misreading by the Italians for the French uh, Lublon, Le Hublon, Le Hublon. Uh, they mispronounced um, and uh, Pl Pliny's now the beer is called Pliny, and the, and the man actually ought properly to be known as Pliny or Pliny. Yes. So excuse me if I, I say I was, I was, no, no. I was definitely I was referencing the beer because I I never knew the man, but I have had the beer. No, no. Well, I did, uh, Vinny or Viney, ha. Um, <laughs> uh, Pliny, but it ought to be Pliny. But never mind. So um, there is there is no definite evidence that the plant that Pliny stroke Pliny was talking about. Uh, is the hop? It probably was. It possibly was. I would say that the the odds are uh, in favour of him talking about the hop, but we can't be absolutely certain. And there are plenty of people uh, that were, have in the past stood up and, and denied it. So, um, but but what he said about it, uh, he said it was a wild plant, uh, and you could eat its shoots, which indeed, as you know, we people yeah. do eat shoots today. Yes. Now we're coming up to forty-five minutes, and whilst we literally could chat for a, for, for a long time, a lot of this people can get just by buying your book, um, which we'll get to in, in in a short while. But just cross uh, some of the things off from our last podcast. Um, we had a lengthy chat about the um, kerfuffle um, that was caused when you were a little bit critical of the Oxford Guide to Beer um, four years ago, and. Uh, Garrett Oliver said some unkind things, and you, we, we had a great chat uh, defending your honour. Have, have you and Garrett had, had occasion to have a beer together in the last four years? Well, um, I don't know how true this is. Somebody told me uh, some while later that they had been talking to Garrett and, and uh, he had finally uh, admitted that I may have had a point or two. Um, we did, I can't remember what we were doing uh, in 2011, but um, an, an American blogger um, called Alan McLeod or McLeod, I can't remember his surname. Oh, I, I, I think he would he's be from very Canada. upset if you could. Yeah, he's from Canada, yes. Scotland. Be... I do apologise to him. A, forgetting his surname and B, calling him an American when he's Canadian, uh, put together um, a wiki where people gathered um, all the errors that they could find in uh, in the Oxford beer book, and it came to something fairly substantial, like about fifty thousand words of corrections. Uh, and I'm still, as I probably, I'm sure, I would have said at the time, um, I think it was an extremely brave effort. I think that uh, Garrett wasn't given anything like the resources he should have been. I think that the um, Oxford people uh, pulled a fast one on him and everybody thought it was going to be a dead easy job and it's not an easy job to do at all. And I, and I hope that when they do finally get around to 
bringing out a second edition, they were able to uh, incorporate the corrections that we did, and I won't even charge them for doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, that put to rest, because it was quite a fascinating uh, story back in the day. Um, Over the last four years, do you think the... You know, the, the, the standard of beer writing in, in that the, the, the amount of referencing that people are putting in or the, the, the research they're doing when they write about beer has gotten better or worse? Uh, I think that there are, there are certainly uh, a number of new writers who, who have come up who are extremely good, uh, who I certainly feel uh, challenged by and uh, who I you know, try to make sure that my, my game is uh, sufficiently high to um, keep up with them. Uh, who would I, they be, just so we can... Uh... Uh, Boak and Bailey are, are a couple of great writers. Um, Mark Dredge is uh, always worth following. He's... he's um, Got a new book out, which I'm well, having a new book out soon, um, which I'm looking very much looking forward to. Fortunately, the the old guards still seem to be uh, performing pretty well. Um, Pete Brown is is writing as as well as he ever did. Um, Stan Anonymous in uh, the states. Um, Jeff, I've forgotten his surname as well, who just brought out the Beer Bible. Uh, that was a fantastic effort. I mean, he was kind enough to send me a free copy, and I'm very much looking forward to, to reading that. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, partly because people know that if they, if, um, they try to present inaccuracies, um, they'll be roundly challenged and, <laughs> and booed. So they try to make sure that it's that, you know, what they're writing the, on the historical front is... Uh, is as accurate as possible. Um, there, there is certainly evidence that, that people are making more effort. Although, on the other hand, uh, there has still been at least a couple of uh, incidents in, in the past year or two where people have come out with with appallingly ill-researched rubbish. Uh, you know, people like um, somebody had a, an article in the Smithsonian, which was taken from their book. Uh, a book that they'd written about the history of beer, uh, which had something like, I counted more than 25 factual errors and errors of interpretation in it. And so, so uh, yes, there are plenty of good people. Yes, people, I think, are trying hard to make sure that what they're writing uh, is accurate, but you still occasionally find people writing total nonsense about beer. What's the number one myth that you just wish you could kill? Uh, it probably still is about uh, IPA being a super strong beer um, uh, and no other beers were uh, survived the journey because that still pops up. It's still around and it still annoys me when, they, when people go on about how uh, this man in the East End of London uh, had to invent this super hot beer because no other beers survived the journey. <coughs> it was Massey's more porter uh, exported to India over the over the centuries than, than there ever was uh, pale ale, uh, and most of the beer drunk in India was was actually porter, not pale ale at all. And it was obviously uh, you know survived the journey because Captain Cook uh, or J- Joseph Banks writes about drinking porter um, as he sailed up the east coast of Australia in the. Uh, First Fleet toasted the uh, raising of the Australian flag, or not the Australian flag, but the, uh, the, red, uh, the British flag. flag. Yeah, the British flag. 
yeah, um, absolutely. With, with, with mugs of porter. So it, it, it obviously survived reasonably well. Yeah, and and uh, the fact that you know porter is a is a popular drink and dark people people talk about oh you know can't drink dark beer in hot climates. Well, if you go to the West Indies, they're drinking a lot of stout. If you go to uh, Malaysia or, or Hong Kong or uh, Indonesia, they're drinking plenty of stout. Now, the other thing that you, uh, you you opened our eyes to four years ago was the Burton Number no. Three Ale. Um, that was the Australian Ale. Um, yeah, that's Have you done more research? I put you in touch with uh, Mick Bannenberg and Andrew Bailey, who are two of the Austra- great Australian, um, you know, amateur beer historians, and I, I think you'll have a lot um, to do. But Mick actually had a picture um, of the uh, Australian Number no. Three Ale. Yeah, he sent me he sent me a uh, copy of that, and uh, it's fantastic. Uh, it's I, I still do not know why um, this market grew up for uh, the, the Burton num, Burton number three. The, the, all the Burton brewers um, graded their beers in in dis, descending order from the number one, which is the strongest, down to about number six, or you even got number seven or eight, which are the weakest. Uh, so number three would have been, you know, sort of slightly above mid-strength beer. So you're talking about a, a beer that, because of the style, would have been uh, quite sweet, quite fruity, uh, quite dark, and uh, talking about what beers are suitable for particular climates, not, I would have thought, a beer that would necessarily have been that suitable for the Australian climate, and yet there was obviously a big market for it. Uh, a number of brewers in Sheffield, and again, why Sheffield? I don't know. Uh, specialised in brewing these these Australian ales, and uh, it's, it, I've not been done that much more research uh, since since I last wrote a blog piece. Um, but it's an it's an area that you know I find absolutely fascinating that that, that here's this. Uh, strange colonial market growing up for a beer that wasn't necessarily that popular back, back home in Britain. It, it would be fascinating to see what we can find out um, uh, about it here. And you, you're an avid reader of our Trove online history, um, which is the digi- yeah. digitised newspapers. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and, and hopefully uh, between Mick and Andrew, you'll be able to, or Mike and Andrew, you'll be able to um, put some pieces together. And uh, hopefully we can even put you in touch with somebody who might have, you know, accommodate you to come out and um, you know maybe maybe do some lecturing out out this way. Well, that'll be that'll be tremendous. It's uh, about twenty years since I was last in Australia, so I'd very much like to come back. You're due for a return. <laughs> yes. So, uh, well, Martin, just before we we, we do let you go, um, maybe you can "Strange Tales of Ale" by Martin Cornell is the book. Um, now, I, I note that you have varying levels of um, income derived from the book depending on how it's purchased. So how would you prefer people buy the book? Uh, now, this one, I would prefer them to buy the hardback because I get more money from the hardback. Some, some of my other books, it depends on what, the pub, what deals the publishers do, and I must pay more attention the next time I sign a contract. Uh, if you want to buy Amber Golden Black, my previous book, please buy the Kindle version because I get more money from the Kindle version. Strange Tales of <laughs> I get more money from the hardback version, so please buy the hardback. 
Okay, well, I, I bought the Kindle version um, just because I couldn't wait um, once we uh, had set it up. But I will now go. Actually, is there a mechanism that I could buy a couple of books, get them sent to you to sign, and then we could give away to our readers, perhaps, if if if, if I uh, organise for the postage to be remitted to you and, and you, you sign them and sent them on, um, we could yeah. do a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, yeah, that would be okay. I mean, I, I would I would guess that the easiest thing. Uh, will be for you to buy it through Amazon UK and have it posted to me and then for me to forward it on. That would be all right. I'm going to post it. Okay. To, I'm happy to pay the whatever it might be, two or three pounds to post it to Australia. No problem. Uh, it could be a little bit more, so we might even look at doing that to save take it out of your pocket. But um, the, the other thing is uh, Amber, Gold and Black, which is still one of my uh, you know always go-tos um, on you know British beer styles and uh, just something to sort of uh, read when you want to learn about what mild means and the history of uh, ale being a lower hop, slightly stronger beer um, than, than beer. And uh, uh, it's obviously still in print, is it? Or is it only available as a e-version? This still seems to be selling uh, pretty well, five five years uh, since it was published now. And uh, I'm still, still getting reasonable reports of its sales. Um, which is great because it's certainly the book I uh, am proudest of. The thing that the thing that I've done that, that I'm proudest of because uh, nobody ever had done a thing like that before, and I've not seen anything, um, frankly, boasting. I've not seen anything as good since. <laughs> and are you working on anything that we can uh, follow up in in the hopefully not years to come? Yeah, well, I'm hoping uh, it's um, yeah, it's. 13, 12 or 13 years since um, Beer, the Story of the Pint, uh, which was the history of, of brewing, uh, sort of general history of brewing, came out. And it's time for a, a revised version of that, not least because an awful lot has been discovered about beer history since I wrote that book. There's quite a few things um, that are new, that have been changed, um, that, have, that wasn't possible to write about then. So I am slowly uh, putting together ideas for um, a, a new version. It might be a new version. It will be more or less a completely rewritten uh, history of brewing, um, which, again, will we'll attempt to cover everything right back to um, the Stone Age and on forward to the modern day. Uh, when that will happen, who knows, because I'm... Like everybody else, I've got far too many projects on the go and not enough time. <laughs> As is true of all of us. Well, Martin Cornell, in, in the meantime, people can certainly, and we would highly recommend um, that they head to the Zetherfile uh, blog, um, Zetherfile dot, which is Z-Y-T-H-O-P-H-I-L-E, and I don't know why I said that because we can just put in the show notes, but Zetherfile.co.uk. Uh, um, which is beer now and then, which is your um, amazingly regular for the depth of research that goes into each of the posts, uh, the, the, the podcast. And they'll certainly be able to keep track of everything you've got coming on there. Right. Well, thank you very much for speaking to me. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. 
Serious about handmade beers and with an open-door policy, Brewpacks brewers love having passionate hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There you go, Prof. Thoughts? Excellent. Yeah, good um, Good to listen to him again. I was a little bit worried at one point, uh, and it's it's all about, you know, the vernacular and how, you know, you hear things and then it just takes you a couple of seconds to, to translate. And so I was just wondering what kind of pubs, just for a minute there, I was wondering what kind of pubs does Martin go to where beer is used for lubricating the crack? And then it just, <laughs> and then it just well, clicked to me, oh, okay, yeah, 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 C-R-A-I-C. Yeah, I, I, I did hear the same thing, and I was sort of, uh, sort of edited myself from uh, saying anything. But uh, yeah, <laughs> and, I, and the I other thing I'm going to do too, Matt, I am going to test your theory. So starting tonight, I'm going to pour lager into my uh, into into a, a Spiegelau IPA glass and put it all over social media and see if it breaks the internet. <laughs> I just want to see what happens. Here, yeah, drinking this really nice uh, Stone and Wood Green Coast Lager. In the well, wrong glass. In the wrong glass. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I'd, have you noticed that Spiegelau has gone, you know, they used to have the, the, the wheat beer glass that was you know, shaped like the traditional wheat beer glass. It was beautiful, except it was too tall and the base wasn't heavy enough because Spiegelau was so light and then they got knocked over and broken a lot. But it was the, the, the beautiful wheat beer glass. They had the stem pilsner glass. They had that really skinny pilsner glass and then they had the, like, yeah, the traditional lager really glass. Liked. yeah. Um, and look, and the beer tulip, the beer tulip. I mean, we drink stem out of those. pilsner. That, that's cool. Stem pilsner, um, sorry, yep. which was, which used to be called the beer tulip. Well, I, I think it's interchangeable, but I think the official name is the stemmed pilsner. Okay, um, but, but it, look, it, we drank quite a bit of beer out of that together um, at our time. They are, my beer and it's just a great all-purpose glass. It is, and and in fact, it feels I, nice in the hand. If you've got something a bit a bit stoutier or a bit uh, porter, you know, you can kind of cup it. Give it a bit of that, a bit of that swirl, and uh, you know, sit back in the Chesterfield with the smoking jacket on. Um, but then a nice, crisp, clean Kölsch or a lager presents equally as well. But if you notice, uh, they've recently released their tasting kit, which used to have those yep. four glasses. Yeah, the updated in. one. They they got the skinny Pilsner glass out previously and put in the IPA glass when the IPA glass was in, and now suddenly the new one has the IPA stout. the stout, and I yeah. think it's a Whitbeer glass, is it? Uh, I haven't seen the Whitbeer one. Uh, I might again. I might just have call that up while we well, chat. Yeah, yeah. Or perhaps uh, I, we can throw uh, up uh, the show uh, notes. As I said to Martin, it's um, you know just a, a wonderful coincidence that the perfect glass for drinking these very styles that happens to be something that is distinct and um, you know very social media friendly. Um, but anyway, you know, I'm getting a little bit cynical. But actually, the thing that brought I did that detect to just is, a hint of cynicism in your voice, then Matthew. But there is a um, another glass manufacturer. And I'll, I'll definitely post this photo as well, where there are these glasses that uh, they look like they're, you know, from Space 1999, or you know, uh, Arthur C. Something from Arthur C. Clarke, where they're all very distinct shapes. But then they have this. I think I showed you the the, the photo the, when the you were no, 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 no. The, the, the Zahm are just a beautiful, you know, they're, they're just nice um, pub glasses. These were these other ones that had those cubes, you know, that they had the pyramid triangle oh, in yes, the bottom. Yes, 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 And um, I'll post it, you know, just... Yes. And it's got like a, like a, a punt, um, as you would, you know, like the indentation in the bottom of a wine bottle. 
it's got almost like a a a negative space pyramid. Which, if you think of a champagne bottle, which is where the, the ice can sit up underneath, is my understanding is that when you put it into an ice bucket, the ice has got oh, somewhere to go. Okay. So, so that's what that's for. Okay, yeah, yeah. Or, or no, it just means that it can sit with the ice up into it, so it, the ice has got somewhere to go, um, is my understanding. Um, but yeah, so, and I'll post a photo of these, and I'll, I appreciate that you know a lot of you are reading this on your, or listening to this podcast in the car or on the train or whatever. So if you think to, but uh, I'll just describe it. It looks, it, 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 it's indented deeply into the base of it, but very visibly. So, you know, it, it just, it's almost like a red light in the bottom of your glass that you were drinking this particular manufacturers, which has a lot to do with wank um, and not so much to do about the function or the enjoyability about the beer, unless being a wanker is a big part of your enjoyment. Of beer, beer. Um, yeah. Which uh, again, and, you know, as, no judgment here. Well, as judgmental as that sounded, there is, you know, there is always a little bit of that in in everything that we do. But anyway, um, I'll, I'll post those stories. But yeah, no. Anyway, um, a great interview. Martin is a fantastic bloke, and I do encourage you after you subscribe to uh, Australian Brewers News, um, go jump on Zetherfile and uh, and definitely get the book. It's it, it's a great read, and uh, it will solve a lot of barroom arguments. And buy um, the hardcover. Go old school. Buy the hardcover. Do Make, a friend a favour. Yeah, well, no, do, do, do what? Put I didn't buy both. Yeah. Now, we, we will in an upcoming episode, uh, I'm jumping on Amazon to buy a couple of copies. So we will have a giveaway. Um, but don't let that stop you from buying one in the meantime because you think you've got a chance of winning. Um, we, have anyway. lot, we, have, we have lot of, uh, a lot of many, many, many subscribers, which means we also have many people who just get the podcast randomly. So it's not like, you know, the old days, you've got maybe a one in 10 chance of winning stuff. Mm. So don't rely, on the, don't rely on the competition, folks. Buy yourself one and then maybe be treated with a uh, signed copy that you can then give away to, you can give away your copy to a friend and share Please. the love. You're suggesting how our listeners would give away a thumbed copy, a, a used sample to their friends and keep the good one. Yeah. Well, the signed one. It's just cynic's corner today, isn't it? You've stayed in hotels where, or you know, um, you know, beach motels where they have you know, the the take one, leave one book shelf. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just sharing the love. All right. Yeah. And Martin gets two sales out of it anyway, so I'm sure exactly. he doesn't That's care if, if he's listening to this. So anyway, now, uh, Lucky, uh, play us into our mailbox. Yes, Prof, uh, we have had a few uh, cards and letters this week. Um, the sack is fair. bulging, Matt. Well, well not quite. We've got a couple of... Uh, we get a couple of reviews. They get, that counts as... Um, we do. We, we do. But the, the most heartwarming um, is uh, Ruby, um, who is at rxby underscore, um, who, upon listening to our last podcast with at... JL Brewing, which is the Jackie Lounge Brewing, which have, for, to those who don't know is uh, Scott Hargrave's home brewery is the Jackie Lounge um, Brewery and Bar. Um, and she said, amazing interview, Dad. So proud of you. Heart, heart, go bolter, woohoo. So Scotty's getting a little bit of love from his daughter, which was quite lovely. 
And it was in a text form too, so you can't tell whether it was you know in Scotty's handwriting. <laughs> yes, yes. He, so, wouldn't, he wouldn't hack his daughter's account and, and put up nice reviews about himself because he doesn't need to. No, he, he wouldn't. But you know, I'm still wondering whether there's a bit of Tiger Dad going on, you know, forcing <laughs> her out to, to do it. So um, let's see. Now, in other comments on the website, um, actually, interestingly, um, after a couple of weeks, people have obviously been getting out and trying the new Pure Blonde. And there's been, it, well, look, if, if the few comments on Bruce News are reflective of a wider groundswell in the community, uh, the new Pure Blonde isn't going too well. Um, well, particularly amongst the original drinkers, whether or not it's attracted a whole new horde of drinkers um, who are loving it and not complaining, we don't know. Because you think um, CUB2 would have been, you know, just a little bit gun-shy of, of tinkering with, you know, a proven formula. Reducing the alcohol, which yes. has worked for them in the past, um, not, not. Um, and changing the formula, and then insisting that the beer will taste exactly the same because they've had it tasted by a panel of experts who have uh, decided to taste the same, which um, is exact. In fact, I think it was the same media release that they released uh, when they changed VB, and you know they just cut the same paragraphs about no one was <laughs> going to taste the difference. But anyway, people are tasting the difference. Uh, Cody. Um, Wade in said, hi, I was just wondering why you had to take away the original. Now, Cody, it wasn't us, so I hope this isn't directed at us. We're just the messengers. Wondering why you had to take away the original Pure Blonde beer from your loyal customers. I've been drinking the original Pure Blonde from day one. I'm not happy. He's not happy with punctuation by the look of it, but he's uh, he doesn't seem Sometimes to give... punctuation suffers when you just need to get to the point. Yes. I'm not happy as a customer. Why didn't you give another name to the new one and left the old one as it was, I've tried the new one, and it to me, it tastes like soda water. You should look at all the comments on your Facebook page, and you will see what I'm talking about. I'm sorry to say this, but you're losing a lot of customers. Thanks, P.S., your new blonde sucks. Now, there were, that was not a single full stop, so hopefully I've uh, <laughs> given true... That's not the old uh, whose line is it anyway, things you can say about your beer that you can't say about your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. And another one, uh, Neo Gion. Uh, Pure Blonde has been my favourite beer so far because of the refreshing taste and the freshness on the next day. New Pure, Pure Blonde doesn't have that same awesome full taste. I shouldn't laugh. Sorry, sorry, sorry that just yeah, sounds that like... Please, Lucky. That just sounds like the worst kind of snob. But look, for some people, um, Pure Blonde does have a full taste within the confines of the um, low-carb category, I'm sure, so I shouldn't... Um, yes. Sorry. <laughs> See, now, now you've got me doing it. Uh, especially finishing this, especially the finishing taste no longer exists. Now, I could be really cynical and say, was there once a finishing taste? But I won't. I'll, be def I'll definitely be, again, a big fan of Pure Blonde if the previous one comes back, but new one really disappointing. I know that you guys are, I know you guys are pursuing for beer lovers However, don't care much about carbohydrates. Jumping from 50m to 100m to the ground, oh, 50 metres to 100 metres to the ground pretty much gives the same result. <laughs> okay, so, he, okay. Um, Pure Blonde was always a great beer. Anyway, hey, listeners, you, you, you get Spoiler the Spoiler alert, there were no carbs in it to start with. Well, there were very few carbs. Exactly. Inconsequential carbs, anyway. So it was more like, uh, you, know, you know, falling off, 
uh, you know, uh, uh, the first step as opposed to the second step, maybe. Oh, look, I don't know. Anyway, you, you get the gist. People are unhappy with the new Pure Bond. But then again, um, I wonder if new people are loving it. So um, in other, looking at our iTunes, Facebook, we've had two um, people come in and uh, uh, the, the delightful um, Girl Plus Beer who gave us a shout out in her blog post. Um which is uh, Pia uh, over in WA, who is a sometimes contributor to this site, but not for some time, and uh, a contributor Contracted to Crafty to Find. Crafty Find, I think. So, you know, there's Contracted team location issues Find. there. Oh, no. but, Still love her work. We, we, we have no... We, we don't compete with anybody. Not at um, all. Anyway, so uh, five stars. Very, very nice of you, uh, Pia. Um, informative, engaging. The interviews and discussions always seem to spark something up in my brain. I'd leave feedback, but I'm always driving. Yes, uh, thank you for that. That's something we do need to consider uh, when I'm listening. But rest assured, I'm chatting to you through our car radio. Hey there, Pia. Thank you. We're chatting to you too. Great work, guys. Keep them coming. Um, and let's see. Will we see what Pia normally uh, reviews? Oh, first, uh, it's the first thing that Pia's ever reviewed. Anyway, so uh, we've got nothing to base her the quality of her feedback on. But she's given us five stars, which is very nice. The other one is Mr. Sparkle Sparkle Rat, who gave us four stars. But we'll, we'll Mr. Play Sparkle it. Sparkle Rat. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what that means. I'm um, guessing that's not his real name. No, no, no. I'm, I'm guessing it might just be Mr. Rat. Who knows? But uh, probably the second best Australian beer podcast after Inebriation Nation. Um, my first thought was, oh, Hello. But anyway, he then goes on to say, for beer tragics like me, however, it should probably rate as the best for commercial brewers or people in the industry in general, uh, which is probably, it, it's fair to say, Prof, that, yeah, we don't we, we don't really do the um, beer geek stuff because we don't, I mean, do you, do you count yourself a beer geek? No, nah. no. Nah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I, I'm not really interested in the latest and the greatest, which is the sort of thing that would, uh, uh, you know, get those guys in. So, but yeah, anyway, nah. so... I, I, we don't want to alienate if we do have some of those there. You know, you're more than welcome. I, I think we do. Look, I, I think we're we're fairly balanced in terms of what we what we offer in terms of our uh, like information and entertainment. But I think yeah, some of it uh, just by, through the nature of the, the the guests that we get on and and what I guess they feel uh, impassioned about speaking about. It, it is sometimes yeah. There's that that sort of technical side of things, keeping the the brewing community. Uh, at a commercial level, I guess more in more informed or more in touch with with what everyone else is doing and that kind of thing. Mm, but there, more, there is more, a, more so a than of, the you know the inverted commas average punter. Maybe. Yeah, and I mean there there is a little bit of self selection that because we speak to people who interest us because we figure that that's going to make the most interesting conversation because we're asking questions that we actually want the answer to. Um, uh, but actually, which segues nicely into his next point. I enjoy Matt getting on his soapbox. Well, thank you. Um, you're one of the few that do. And Pete playing the moderating role um, when he's not sitting on the fence. Sorry, that was <laughs> me. That was me in parentheses. Um, some of the same beer industry gripes are starting to get repeated regularly. And that's a, actually a very good point, yes, um, which, which is Matt, sometimes this, some of the same horses getting flogged. Uh, yes, so I, I will bear that in mind. Um, although to... The, the, the flip side to that is that sometimes I throw the same sorts of issues to very different guests because everyone's got a different – that there isn't one yeah, unified the topic, the topic might come up, yeah. At a, but, yeah, but we, we uh, entice a different take or a different uh, perspective out of well, – Yeah, to, to, to yeah, balance all of yeah, the other sort of similar yeah. – Yeah, cool. 
Um, anyway, uh, but I understand this is often in context. Thank you. Not magic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have to. I want to. You want to read all the way through before you start? Yeah, breaking it down. Yeah, but but I want to sort of find Mr. Sparkle Sparkle wrote a beer because this is a uh, you know wonderfully balanced and uh, insightful you know no, no, I wouldn't say carrot and stick because he's not you know anyway he, he he's sort of looking at both sides great work guys P.S. I reckon Pete should do a few more interviews um, maybe that's a backslap to me that I should shut up more and a regular stand up comedy routine I loved his presentation at the Queensland Homebrew Conference dinner last weekend cracked me up there you oh, go Prof. Oh, there we go more. so so Mr. Sparkle Sparkle Rat. Rat. Okay, mm. is a Queensland or involved in the Queensland home brewing scene? Okay, he must be. So uh, yeah. Um, now just to, to look at you know, just so it's not uh, in context. In, in context, looking how much at the value other... do you place on his on his uh, thoughts and comments based on what else he? Writes? Yeah, it, it... I mean, anyone that goes to TripAdvisor and just takes the first review from somebody as gospel, you, you go and see what else they've reviewed. Trend. You get a sense. Yeah, trends yeah, and themes. To, yeah. Do you, sure do, you that... look at, do you look at what they also bought or what they also looked I at? I do sometimes, yeah, to, oh, okay. to, to see how, how they gel. Yeah, but like okay. particularly TripAdvisor because it could be somebody who's just a competing hotel or you know, that hotel themselves. Right. So you want to see a, a body of comparison. Okay. But also they're just to sort of see, you know, you, you, you never read the – sorry to American listeners, and I know that there are quite a few of you, but you never listen to American tourists' reviews of hotels because their expectations are you know, quite fairly jaundiced by the very high quality of hotels in the States um, and, and the, the great value for money. And you know, when they go to Europe, you know, the, the same gripes come up because European hotels are by and large very, very different. But anyway, you know, Mr. Sparkle Sparkle Rat um, gave us four stars – he gave inebriation uh, nation four stars. So, you know, we, we're on a par, even though we're second to them. Uh, as a home brewer and beer tragic, I love listening to these guys rabbit on about beer and the Aussie beer scene. I ride to work regularly, and this is compulsory listening for me on the commute. They get on great guests. Good on you, Barry. Barry, do you, who's that, Pop? I'm not sure which one Barry is. Okay, I have caught an it's inebriation. It's Josh and times. Drunk Kevin. Yeah. I don't know. I, and, and again, you know, I, I'd probably listen a little bit more. I'd... I have this whole thing about an innovation nation yeah. and you know drunk Kevin and as you know we never talk listeners and it's not piousness or anything like that but I think beer has a bad enough image as it is without you know us without talking us about compounding, compounding. And, and I just don't yeah. yeah you know and you know actually to jump on a completely different soapbox and complete you know I, I've spoken to a few people recently about the social media sharing of drunkenness and the hangovers and that sort of thing and you know oh you why do you always have to take craft beer so seriously? And, you know, we're, we're just trying to keep it lightweight and fun. And, you know, I'm going to call it on this. It's always the wankers who photograph artistically their Spiegel glass and the latest, hoppiest, you know, five minutes in the country import beer. And they've got 57 brewery shirts that have been lovingly given to them by the brewer. And, you know, they, they've been out, every... some, of, some of them are lovely. Some of them are lovely, just good on oh, no, no, yeah, look, I, Who happen to just, just be able just, to take a good, good just, photograph. Just, just, just let me get it off my chest that, you know, but it, it's that there is a type of personality um, that, you know, takes beer. What I think is, over. I don't have a single beer t-shirt, you know, I, I make a living out of it. And, but, you know, anyway, it's just comparison, but, you know, call you out. It, it, You've got a green beacon hoodie. That, that's still that's got a count. Still got a count. Okay. It is my only hoodie and it's because it is actually warm and Brisbane, you, you, you I don't want to yeah, invest so two in days a year, you get to wear it. Yeah, because it's, but I don't, yeah, anyway. Okay, so so you call me out. But anyway, where was I? So anyway, so but it's, it, it, I find that it's always the people who, you know, are deeply involved in the craft beer community 
um, and you know have the latest glass and all that sort of thing who are the ones that you know when you sort of talk about well do we really need to talk about drunkenness and hangovers and how shit face we got and how we're recovering from you know our 17 IPA journey last night that tell you that you shouldn't be so serious when it comes to the perception of beer and how it's perceived so that, that's that's my point I would much rather um, you know take that aspect of beer seriously and not propagate all of the worst aspects of beer as being a uh, you know a, a yobbo's drink. Oh, but anyway, fair point. Well made. C- completely, completely off topic. And I'm sorry, listeners, that was just my little bugbear. Um, uh, back at goal today, special two-hour yeah. episode. <laughs> and speaking of which, the last game that he, uh, that the last uh, app that um, Mr. Sparkle Sparkle Rat reviewed was My Horse, um, which he gave five <laughs> stars, which was his highest rating, incidentally, apart from Will. Uh, you know, Will. Um, Is that an app Anderson's where you get to flog horses? horses? No, no, but he, I've, I've always wanted a horse, and now I can have one when, wherever I go. This app is amazing. It may be his, if, if he's like me, he's got children who are linked to his account, and maybe his child yeah. downloaded it, um, because my daughter's downloaded My Little Pony or something on mine. Um, but anyway, so either that or he has a horse and he doesn't like me. He or she, I should say, even though it's Mrs. Sparkle's Sparkle. Yeah. Maybe that's the horse that I've been flogging. But anyway, that's... Uh, Oh, lucky. That that's the feedback. Um, if anyone does want to send feedback, please do jump. Sorry, we, did I come? I'm thinking there? that this episode might draw a little bit of feedback. <laughs> Just one way or t'other. If you've got 57 beer shirts, give me a piece of your mind. And if you're not driving in your car, or if you are driving in your car, even better. If you are driving in your car and you shout you're at your radio the, now, and you're yes, and you want if you're shouting at your radio, use your dial. Um, your automatic dialer, don't you know, um, to phone in and tell me while you're hot under the collar. Get on your own soapbox. The number is 07 3040 Tell me off. Tell me that you agree with me. Tell me that you know, Prof is so far on both sides of the fence that he will be singing falsetto. Uh, what tell us whatever you like, but uh, yes, 07. 07- Three zero four zero one five zero eight, and of course that'll be in the show notes. Otherwise, when you're not driving, when you're not on, um, if you're on the train, you can get us uh, at editor at brewsnews dot com dot au or at brewsnews uh, Twitter. I'm good beer Matt on Twitter and everywhere else. We You'll find out. Don't try not to shout if you're on the train listening to Radio Brews News. Try not to shout out because it can make other passengers uncomfortable and and involve um, you know. Uh, intervention by PSOs. <laughs> particularly, particularly if you're in the quiet carriage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, Lucky, mate, once again, you've got to save us. Get us out of here. Thanks, Pete. Talk to you next week. Thanks, listeners. Have a good one. Uh, out.